1: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
0: Washington Post, this is
1: Colby.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 26th. Today, the rift between schools and teachers unions, plus how a new Secretary of Agriculture could open wounds for Black farmers.
2: Now in Chicago, there's a big fight between the teachers union and the school system. They are pretty deadlocked in how they should resume in-person instruction, you know, and how to convince teachers that it's safe and that they should go back to school.
1: That's Perry Stein. She covers education in D.C. for The Post.
2: We're waiting now. The next large group of teachers there are set to return. And this is a big deal. This is the nation's third largest school district, and the mayor wants schools open.
1: And also today isn't the first day of school. It is our city's first day of embarking on our path to returning to in-person learning uh, since that learning stopped more than 300
2: days ago. Back then our city was in a very different place. And the teachers union says, not now, it's not safe. There is no clear plan for us. We want to return to school, but we want to return to school safely. This is a management and structural access issue, and it's inequitable. This is not unique to Chicago. This is happening in school districts all across the country where teachers may not feel ready to go back and the city says, hey, it's time. So, Perry,
1: you cover D.C. schools, and schools here are actually supposed to partially reopen for in-person classes on Monday, even though there's still a ton of uncertainty about how that's actually going to work. So I think what's been happening in D.C. is a really interesting case study of how this is unfolding in so many school districts around the country. What are you seeing in terms of this argument over whether
2: or not to go back to school and when and how? Certainly. And it's something, you know, I have spent my last many months here covering what's been going on in D.C. schools. And you do see those tensions here as well. And I want to be clear that it is much more complicated than just unions versus school systems and cities. I mean, we have charter schools, for instance, that are not unionized, and those are also not back in person. So it is a very complicated dynamic. But I think, at least in D.C., you know, the union hasn't always been thought here as this huge, powerful force here, but they have exerted, they have shown that they do have a voice here. They have been pretty powerful, and they have really pushed back against the city's attempts here to reopen schools. D.C. has tried to reopen schools twice already, first in the fall and then again in November. And in November, they got pretty far along and they, you know, had even started offering some seats to students. So telling students, here's a seat, you can come back. Now, both of those attempts, both in the fall and in November, they failed. The schools never reopened. And The city, the chancellor has said multiple times, we could not reopen because we did not have the proper supply of teachers. We did not have enough teachers. We knew we couldn't get them back in classrooms. Now, the teachers union, on the other hand, said, you know, this is not on us. Your plan was bad. You didn't have huge demand from kids. And you guys didn't build trust or confidence in your plan. And they did not get public buy-in from it. They did not build trust in it. And the union and, and the city just disagreed every single turn. So I'm curious to hear more
1: from the perspective of the city or cities like D.C. that are also going through this process. What is the argument for why it is more urgent now than ever to make the best attempt at opening schools?
2: look, we're hitting March 13th, at least in the city, we're hitting a year where these children have been out of school. There is new data. Every week we have more and more data emerging of the learning loss that is occurring. And we know that that learning loss is not spread evenly across all of you know, our nation's learners, poor families, low-income families, families of color, they are more likely to be falling behind in school. And that is what city leaders are resting their case on, saying, we got to do this. We understand more about how to protect people in group settings. We have masks. We have better air filtration systems. We have all this. Now, on the teacher side, and and I, I wanna be clear, it's not just teachers. We have a huge amount of families in DC. In fact, most families do not want to go back at this point, or let's say, you know, based on surveys, most will not be going back right now. They say, learning loss we can make up, there's too much at stake, there's too much risk. I mean, the virus is raging right now. It's not just students and teachers, it's who they could possibly bring this virus home to. And on the school's perspective, they say, you know, we have mitigation factors in place. We have so many m- mitigation strategies in place. I've been in these school buildings. I mean, they have places for masks so kids and teachers can pick up. They take their temperatures. There's hand sanitizer and a sink at the door. And then you, there's signs you know, telling kids to just walk in one direction at the hallway. Every desk has tape around it. So kids know not to go outside of their square to keep six feet apart. There's new upgraded air filters. There's portable air filtration systems in every room's being used. And the thing is, whether you feel, if you feel schools are unsafe and it's not time to go back, these mitigation strategies probably won't build a ton of confidence of you. But if you're going to these schools, you can't argue that there are not mitigation strategies in these DC schools.
1: So if all of these different strategies and protocols have been put in place to try to make schools safe, what are the arguments that are being made by teachers unions of why that's not enough or what would it take for them to feel like it's actually safe for them to be back in a, in a classroom with kids?
2: And that's a good question and I don't fully know that answer. Um when we tried to open schools and by we I mean DC tried to open schools in August and November, the, the rates of the virus were actually lower than they are now. So we are like opening schools at a time when the virus is high. So that's one factor. Now, there's also a long history in many cities, and D.C. is no different, of mistrust between the public and the school system. And the teachers union, and again, I want to say many parents' perspective, is why ask us to trust you now? Why now, when for many years... We have had a relationship of broken trust, and their argument is DC's not being transparent. They say the air filter has been upgraded, we say there's still a work order out, and the buildings are not, they feel the buildings are not as up to code as the city says. Now, DC and the union have reached an agreement that there's this long safety checklist that every building has to meet in order for it to reopen. If it doesn't meet those safety protocols, that building is not allowed to reopen. Now, there's some debate as who gets to say that that building meets the checklist and who doesn't. So, you know, there are disagreements every line of the way.
1: And then what about the prospect of vaccinations? Like, is there a sense that teachers are waiting for that, that they feel like they shouldn't be back in classrooms until they have been able to be vaccinated?
2: D.C., for instance, is rolling out vaccinations. Teachers get their first vaccination shot today, actually, tonight. They they will be able, if they're going back in person on February 1st, which is when D.C. is set to reopen, they can start getting their vaccine
1: today. In-person staff, including teachers and support staff for D.C. Public Schools and D.C. Public Charter Schools. Um, And so each of those employees, eligible employees, will get an email from um, their organization. DC Health and DCPS is partnering with Children's uh, to vaccinate DCPS staff. Um, eligible staff members, as I mentioned, will receive a direct um, communication. Uh, similarly, DC public charter schools will receive guidance from the Office of the State Superintendent of Education regarding um, the charter school vaccination program also starting next week.
2: Now, that means that teachers will not be fully vaccinated when they go back to school. Now, a lot of leaders, D.C., nationally, all across the country, are saying vaccination should not be tied to reopening. Vaccinations are just an extra layer of safety, and all these mitigation strategies Hmm. are much more important than the vaccine. Now, teachers, on the other hand, are saying, well, if you're prioritizing us and it's so important that we get the vaccine as a priority group, then why not wait for us to be vaccinated to go back to school? We would feel much more comfortable Hmm. going back to school if we had vaccines. So that is the big conflict right now. And also we know that no school system that I know of is requiring teachers to be vaccinated to go back. DC certainly isn't. And, you know, there's a big controversy right now unfolding in D.C. because in the end, what the mayor decided to do was to allow teachers to get vaccinated before, let's say, daycare workers who have been working in person for months.
1: Hmm. That's so interesting. I'm curious if you think that these arguments that are happening between D.C. and the teachers union here or really the arguments between cities and teachers unions all over the country. Do you feel like those are tensions that might carry forward even beyond the pandemic, this sense that what teachers want and what cities want for students, and in some cases, what parents want, that those are not necessarily all in alignment?
2: A lot of people think the union right now is protecting their kids and they like them. I've, I've seen some polls that perhaps public opinion of unions has actually gone up. I know in D.C., I talk to parents who are really angry at the union. They see them having stalled and prevented their kids from going to school. So I think, though, we are going to be looking at public education at the end of this pandemic. It's quite different. And I'm sure teacher unions their relationship with the city has changed. But at the end of the day, at this end of this pandemic, whether we go back to school now or not, the fact of the matter is virtual instruction is not the same as in-person instruction. And our students in this country are falling behind with a disproportionate of that, you know, falling on low-income students, students of color. So Public education, the relationships between teachers, the roles of teachers, yeah. I mean, look, it's all gonna change dramatically when we're ever on the other side of this and we're watching it change now.
1: Perry Stein is an education reporter for The Post. On Tuesday, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a new paper that shed some light on the coronavirus risks inside of classrooms. In that paper, a team of CDC researchers concluded that there has been little spread of coronavirus in schools when precautions like masks and social distancing are in place.
2: I'm Magna Chakrabarti, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation
0: takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy, to AI, to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. Tom Vilsack is a career politician. He was the Secretary of Agriculture under Obama for eight years, the longest tenured cabinet member in that administration. And now he is the nominee, Biden nominee, for that same role, to reprise the role as Secretary of Agriculture. And that's Laura Riley. And I'm the business of food reporter at The Washington Post.
1: Laura spoke with producer Jordan Marie Smith about why some Black farmers are not happy with Tom Vilsack's nomination.
0: What was Tom Vilsack's eight years like? It depends on who you ask. So some people say he inherited an agency that had a lot more racial discrimination than some other agencies in the the federal government. Other people say he did not do As much as he could have done to root out systemic racism at the agency. So can you tell me how the Department of Agriculture has perpetuated systemic racism? Farmers, it's a really unique business to be in because it depends on borrowing money all the time. For operating costs, for all of your, for your seeds, for your fertilizer, for your equipment. So there's a lot of borrowing and paying back and and debt. And so historically for black farmers, getting those loans has been much harder to do. You don't get as many loans. You don't qualify for as many of the USDA programs. Often you get different rates for your loan if your credit is not as good as the white farmer And then the other big problem for farming is what happens to your land when it's handed down without a will, five kids and 18 grandkids and 12 great grandkids, and you die without a will, your land gets basically chopped up between all of those eligible people. And there are all kinds of loopholes in the system that make people vulnerable to selling off their little piece of land. So there, there's been this systematic loss of land for Black farmers. 85% of Black-owned farmland has been lost over the last century. So that's more than 15 million acres have kind of been chiseled away either by foreclosures or this heirs' property problem. This is a very long standing and incremental shift in, in land ownership. So... Once Vilsack first became the secretary
1: of agriculture under President Obama, how did he kind of operate within or around the system that already existed?
0: Well, I I spoke with a number of people who were in the administration with Vilsack, and some people say he inherited a mess and he did a lot to... Add a more diverse workforce. I mean that the USDA is a huge agency, hundred thousand employees, and some people say that he did a lot to promote people of color for central roles. But then other people say it was tokenism, and that this agency, which has often been called kind of the last plantation, Mm. uh, disparagingly, that a lot of those kinds of things persisted, and that there were some token African Americans put in you know, prominent roles, but really the leadership, the people that he surrounded himself with, Vilsack, were largely white and largely represented the interests of big ag. So what did tokenism look like at the time? So the most famous incident under Vilsack's rule at the USDA involved Shirley Sherrod in, in about 2010, I think, the fall of 2010. I'm Shirley Sherrod and... I am the executive director of
3: the Southwest Georgia Project.
0: She was the first Black director of rural development in Georgia, and she was recorded speaking about her interaction with a white farmer. And her speech was taken out of context by Andrew Breitbart, and it appeared to say that that she was discriminating against that white farmer based on his race But it was really taken out of context.
3: Breitbart took my speech and cut and spliced to make it appear that though I was telling a story from 24 years earlier, he made it appear that I, in my position as an appointed official with the Obama administration, that I refused to help a white farmer.
0: And so There was a hue and cry, and people demanded her head on a platter, basically. If they
3: just stopped to think for a minute, maybe cooler heads would have prevailed, but they
0: didn't. And within 24 hours, she was relieved of her job at the USDA.
3: They told me I was placed on administrative leave, and they called when I was about an hour. I had only been on the road about an hour and then they called again as I was going through heavy traffic in, in um, Atlanta. They said the White House wanted me to resign. And then before I could get to Athens, which is where the state office is, they called again and asked me to pull to the side of the
0: road and use my BlackBerry to submit my letter of, of resignation. And when it came to light that her speech had been taken out of context, Vilsack offered her not her old job back, but a different job, which she declined.
3: He is the one who fired me, basically.
0: So she was kind of the poster child for unequal treatment at the agency. And there, there were a number of people I spoke with Lloyd Wright and Lawrence Lucas and a bunch of people who had firsthand experience of the USDA who said, you know, punishment or tolerance at the agency was very unequal based on your race. So Lloyd Wright in particular was the, the head of the USDA's Office of Civil Rights. And he basically said Sherrod was kind of a very strong and clear example of unequal treatment at the agency. But beyond who was employed at the USDA under Vilsack, a lot of people really point to the treatment of white and black farmers. Um, And I I spoke with a a farmer in Tennessee, Corey Lee, for quite a while.
3: My name is Corey Lee. I live in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and I'm the uh, executive director of the Cowtown Foundation, and we're advocates for black farmers and socially disadvantaged farmers alike
0: who says there were kind of two forms of administrative response depending on the race of the farmer. So a farmer would come to the USDA and say, I tried to get this loan, or I went to the one of the uh, extension offices to try to get some help on this piece of equipment or something like that. And white and black farmers reported different levels of service. This is not something we're making up. Look at the facts. Those are the facts. This all culminated really before Vilsack took the office. In
3: 1999, the largest settlement against the United States government in a civil case was in favor of black farmers and the class action was called Pigford versus Glickman.
0: So there were these two class action lawsuits that predated the Obama administration called Pigford One and Two that were a way to compensate black farmers who had been discriminated against either in loans or debt forgiveness, those kinds of things. A lot of these farmers who were deemed to have been discriminated against were given one-time $50,000 payments. But what advocates, um, civil rights advocates and, and farm advocates say, is that it didn't go far enough and it didn't forgive the loan debt for a lot of these Black farmers. And because they didn't get debt forgiveness, frequently they were foreclosed upon.
3: Only 2.2% of those farmers got relief.
1: With all the things that we've talked about clouding Tom Vilsack's nomination, what is BillSack up against?
0: Well, we're at a new moment. There's this growing outrage and and growing conviction that an agency like the USDA has to treat people equitably and, and fairly. And there has to be retribution if it doesn't work out that way. I'm sure that at the beginning of the Obama administration, black farmers who felt that they had been discriminated against historically felt it was a new moment, you know? But I think now we really are there. I think the thought is that that Vilsack will have the incentives that he had before to set things right, but kind of supercharged by the the period of history that we've just been through. As we've seen with the coronavirus, it has not affected people fairly. Blacks and Hispanics are are more susceptible to contracting the virus, um, and some of that is about kind of historic systemic racist. Practices and generational wealth, you know, plays into that. So I think that he's entering an agency where there's heightened awareness all around of the stakes involved in, you know, systemic racist practices.
1: Laura Riley covers the business of food for the post. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer on Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This is the last week that you can get a special deal for podcast listeners on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. For just $59, you can get two years of access to everything that the post publishes. And if you're already a subscriber, this is a great gift to give to a family member, a friend, a neighbor, someone that you think would love to learn more about what's happening in the country and the world. And a subscription is an incredible way to support the work that you hear on this podcast. To sign up, go to washingtonpost.com/subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. And as always, thank you so much for your support. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better.